Welcome to Behind the Mirror, a place where students in an online program can have the experience of sitting behind the mirror with a professor and getting all the things you can only get in those face-to-face -face conversations. Uh, today, I have Scott Miller. Um, I actually was introduced to your work in my master, in my grad program, in my in my doc program. Um, right. But I didn't realize that it was you. I did my dissertation on binge drinking, and so I read your text with us uh, uh, into Kimberg about uh, SFBT and and drinking. Um, and then I saw you at the conference in Anaheim this past December, and I was like, "Holy crap! This is the same guy." This <laughs> is the same guy. Actually, I think I remember meeting them because didn't we speak briefly, Jordan? Uh, I think we probably did just for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, Glad to be talking with you. Yeah, and I think one of the things that really hit me about your work is that transition, because you were in solution focused world, and um, now you're really in the world of like feedback informed treatment. Right. Yeah. Um, can you, for students, is usually helpful for them to get a little bit of background. Can you talk about the, the solution focus world and then how you made that transition? So I've always been somebody who was very slow on the uptake about what therapy was and how it was actually done. Students that I went to school with seemed to grasp what it was was all about, what the concepts meant, and how to do it much more easily than me. I, I was a very slow learner and uh, was uh, racked with anxiety uh, 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 regarding the responsibility that this that this placed me in. That I, here I was with somebody who was truly suffering, and really I was kind of young, and I'd led a pretty good life, and uh, I had ideas about what psychotherapy was, but I really didn't know what to do from moment to moment. That included simple things like where did I put my hands and and how long did I look at somebody and when did I look at somebody, let alone all the application of the theories and such. The, uh, uh, I, But I struggled and I read and eventually I met Insu Berg at a conference in Colorado. Uh, I talked with her about ideas that I had and she said, you know, once you get out of school, why don't you contact me? And I thought it was just someone being <laughs> nice. Uh, and, I, you know, after I was out of school and finished my postdoc, I sent her a letter and said, hey, uh, I'm out of school and I'm, I'm interested in learning more about your work. She invited me to come out and the rest is kind of, of history. They offered me a job. And I moved from Palm Springs, California to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a shock in and of itself, uh, culturally and weather-wise. Uh, it, was, it was a huge shock. But I have to tell you, it was an incredible five-year period in my life. I worked every day from 7 in the morning until 10 at night, except Sundays. We saw clients together. We had visiting uh, experts come in and meet with our clients. I sat behind the mirror and watched thousands of hours of therapy done by Insu and Steve DeShazer and Jane Kashnick and Larry Hopwood and all, all manner and sorts of others. And I really became a confident clinician during that particular time. There was a specific protocol to follow and we could often see the results of our work within a session or two because in the second session, we didn't merely continue talking about people's problems. We asked them if anything had changed, and many of the people reported that they did. About the third year into this, we invited some researchers from the outside to come in and, and evaluate the work we were doing. 
uh, from two different places, Calvin College and Texas Women's University. They did research for a year, came back a year later, and together presented their findings. And uh, I, I can remember it as if it were yesterday, sitting behind the mirror with these two researchers and them essentially saying there's good news and bad news. And the, the good news is that what you do works. The bad news is that it doesn't work any better than anything else. It's not any briefer than anything else. There are no single session cures more often than anybody else. Our stats lined up perfectly with existing statistics in the field. Now, that caused considerable debate on the team. How, how could that possibly be? We were positive that we were doing effective work more briefly and with more single session resolutions, and yet the data said no. And I've always been somebody who is uncommitted to ideology and dedicated to following where the facts may lead. That's just my nature. And although it was painful, the team split and began looking at, well, if this particular method wasn't more effective than others, were any methods more effective than others? And it turns out there's a great deal of hubbub in our field, a constant claim that this model is more effective for that problem. We've, I've, I've spent years looking at the data. There isn't any difference in outcome. All of these models work about equally well. But if you're trying to improve your effectiveness as a therapist, your model may not be wh where you should start. At the time, we had no real idea about where to send therapists, so a group of colleagues and I said, well, maybe if you can't know which model is best, what you can find out is if your work with an individual client is working. And I started using two simple tools developed by mentors of mine, Mike Lambert, who had the OQ45, and Lynn Johnson, who developed an alliance questionnaire called the Session uh, Rating Scale. And in time, we, we developed our own briefer measures. But that's where FIT emerged. FIT emerged from the recognition that you could choose any model you wanted, one that appealed to you, and then, and then measure and see, did it work for your client? And were they engaged by it? If not, then the responsibility once again shifted to the therapist to figure out what were they going to do with that person, which generally included changing the therapist's mind rather than trying to change their client. Yeah. I want to um, dig into that because I've, I've started using your, your measures, and it's been really fascinating. Uh, cool. Before we get to that, though, I guess I want to ask a slightly different question. Okay. Because the, the question, the thing that I'd always been taught in my own master's program, and I, I kind of wonder if students aren't getting some of this as well, is that other models, other methods, take years to work. Yeah. And so the contrast was, you know, brief therapy, one to ten sessions versus years of work. And I guess it sounds kind of like um, when you actually look at how long people are in counseling in other models outside of brief therapy world, they aren't in therapy for years. No, they're not. We're talking about a very, very exceptionally small group of clients who spend lots of time in therapy, a large portion of them therapists themselves. <laughs> most, most they will go for length of time. And so the distinction between long and short or brief and something else is, is just really a, a distinction of little consequence. Um. You threw me off on that one. <laughs> that, yeah. that really got me. Because I've yeah. definitely seen that where um, I think the people who I've seen who've been most dedicated to therapy are therapists. Oh, man. Um, and, and this is another thing. You know, virtually all models. So, for example, EMDR, 
uh, for trauma. And I, I, whenever I say these things, people think I'm being critical of EMDR. And EMDR really is one of the most religious group of practitioners I know. They truly believe in the effectiveness of their method. They're, they they proselytize and talk about how it saves clients. But the original claim, I have a long memory, the original claim was it, it could deal with trauma in a much less painful way. And if you compare it to exposure, that's certainly true. Uh, but do it much more briefly. Well, you know, years have passed and you've seen how people who've been through 5, 10, 15 courses of EMDR. It, it's, it's about the same as everything else. And the latest meta-analytic research indicates it's no more effective than any other treatment for, uh, for trauma. So, you know, pick one you like, one that engages your clients and give it a shot. And most critically, we'd say, you gotta measure and find out is the client getting better? Because if they aren't, then who cares about the empirical status of your treatment method? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, also basic statistics, right? No one person actually fits all of the norms. Everybody's exactly. a, an outlier in a sense. Um, so, I think that really brings us back to what you were hitting. Well, let me ask this question first. So how long do clients typically come in for? Four or five visits in public mental health is the average number of sessions. The modal number of sessions is one. Uh, that's true in both private practice and in public health agencies. Uh, if you're in, a, in an area where there's money and high insurance benefits, you end up with a range between 12 and 20 in private practice settings. So it, treatment has always been, or, or whatever it is that therapists provide, has always been of relatively brief duration compared to the the, the mythical status of long-term therapies, psychodynamically oriented therapies. People, most people just don't go that 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 long. Yeah, yeah. I remember back in grad school talking um, to a professor, and we had read *Family Crucible* with um, Carl Whitaker. And that was in the same course that we were studying um, solution focused, and so that was sort of the, the the contrast. But I think as as I've read some of the literature, um, clients do not. I think that for me that was a watershed moment, um, which I actually just had a few a few weeks ago. I was reading. I think Lambert has an article with um, Irvi Vlas, and they're talking about like sessions and clients coming and. Yeah, clients don't come for that many sessions, and so I think a lot of times, even in my own agency, I've begun to ask this this question, and a lot of the clinicians say, people just, you know, they just don't want to do X or Y, and some people aren't motivated, and I, I kind of just think people just don't come for that. They don't come for 20, 30 sessions yeah. on average. Most don't, and I think it's worth I, I think it's worth considering that, which is which I think is a slightly different question than one we one we started with. I think right. a far bigger problem than the average number of sessions is that estimates indicate that eighty five percent of the people who might benefit from seeing one of us for a short or a longer period of time don't ever even consider going to see us. Yeah, and I think that says something about us, Jordan. Maybe we should start asking why don't people engage with us more than they do. Is there something about the way we think about helping and healing the the whole sort of Western Eurocentric notion that we're going to put two people in a room in a semi-confessional format and work together? Maybe there are other healing traditions we can tap into that that put people back 
on a forward forward path i don't know that's again that may be another another conversation but it seems to be the case that that most people come to get their engines started rather than to have us track them throughout the entire race yeah i mean i think we're bumping up against what's really your newest work that's right we are yeah yeah um can you say a little bit about what you're working on now well so there there are two things that that the data have have pointed to once we began once we gave up trying to find the the uh the key that went in the lock that would open up the skeleton uh, keys the, to yeah, solution the, you know, right treatment for the for the client instead said we should measure our outcomes a couple of very pesky problems popped up and one of those problems has dogged the field since at least the 1970s early 1970s and a researcher um, that uh, that that I uh, that that I I love to talk about and that I'll come back to in a minute that it looked to that it looked at the outcome of adults who've been treated as kids in the New York State mental health care system right and found that essentially who treated the, the kid was more important than what treatment they had or their pre-existing functioning. That finding sort of laid there, was cited by a few people, and it's not a very comfortable finding that individual therapists may determine the outcome of, of the therapy more than their particular model or the pre-morbid functioning of, of, of the client. So one thing we've been looking at is what is it that these top performing therapists do and that was the big one of the big problems that showed up in our data we began measuring outcomes and suddenly we start to see that some therapists are consistently more effective than others and our question was well what the hell are they doing what are they doing that the rest of us are missing doing yeah. right and generally because we've ignored this most of the things that were uh, mentioned about these clients were pretty saccharine and general not specific enough to really tell us anything. And I think we would have struggled to explain it had we not happened upon the work of a psychologist whose name is Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson is the so-called expert on expertise. I just finished his book. It was weird. As soon as I started reading your stuff, I had randomly picked up Peak, which is his like lay book, and it is incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's a really good volume. Uh, it's 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 a little dense. His writing can be a little dense, but in in essence, Erickson made the point that if you want to get better at something, you need to find out how the people who do it best manage manage it. So, and what he found, of course, is is that the best spend more time in a process called deliberate practice. And briefly defined, deliberate practice is finding where your usual performance breaks down and targeting that through successive efforts to refine through feedback your performance test that performance and refine once again and the top performers we we now know from several studies in our field spend between two and four times as much time outside of work engaged in that process than more average performers and 14 times more time than the least effective practitioners in our field now here's the puzzling thing about outcome. If you ask the least effective practitioners how effective they are, they rate themselves just as effective as the most effective. So mediocrity knows knows no limits. 
which is which is part of the importance of uh, tracking your own outcomes, right? Because we are often very blind to how we're actually doing. That's that's exactly right, and it can be kind of confrontational at first. But I often tell therapists, you're going to discover quickly that your mother was wrong, uh, that you're not special. <laughs> uh, you know, your mother loved you, but you were like everybody else. And you're just as special as every other snowflake. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, and so finding this was the, the first key finding, that we had to spend time in a process aimed at improving our individual outcomes. Now, when therapists go to training, they often go to very general trainings. They adopt whole new ways of working as opposed to targeting their professional development efforts to their individual non-random errors. Right. Right. Addition by subtraction. That's a, Yeah. Yeah, so to say, yes. I think the second thing that we, that, that we sort of began to realize from the data is, again, if you follow the data logically, if there is no difference in treatment outcomes, then the ingredients that we spend so much time learning to do, whether, for example, in EMDR it's the finger movements or the cognitive weave, or in uh, other, other therapies it's the miracle question, for example, in solution-focused therapy really have no inherent power to heal. And that means, if you, if you take it one step further, that psychotherapy is Western culture's way of solving problems. It's not a medical enterprise. It's a cultural exercise. And that's perfectly fine. That doesn't mean to denigrate it. But it also means that maybe we should be more broad in our perspective and say, how do cultures heal their peoples? And what we do know is that many cultures embrace a more magical worldview, that there are forces beyond our control. And for the last hundred years, our field and the field of medicine and science in general has poked fun at those ideas, called them superstitious for example. But think about this. If believing that rocks have spirits or that crystals can heal you is superstitious because it's untrue, then believing that moving your fingers in front of somebody's eyes in EMDR is equally superstitious. I right. choose to think outside this lens and say, it's not about superstition. It's about humanity. This is what we think of in terms of healing. We have a narrative and a story, and we have associated strategies and pathways to put that story into effect. Right. And traditionally that would be called magic with a, with a CK rather than a C. We're not talking about performance magic. We're talking about embracing un the unseen, living in a world of story and narrative, and being able to use the narrative and the strategies that best fit the individual person. Yeah. Yeah, this is usually a conversation stopper, I have to say, Jordan. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that you're on the far edge of what we do, 
obviously, right? I think I think most people, and I've run into this with, with students, and I haven't quite figured out how to have a conversation because a lot of students come in with this, with this idea that we're basically like, um, they would never say this, but it's almost as though therapy is medicine's um, step cousin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where we have to find the right treatment for this diagnosis um, and if we don't the client's going to be messed up for forever and we can't prescribe so maybe we need to not be too um, I don't know concerned about, not concerned but we need to be very very careful because we can't prescribe so we're not real medical professionals and I think that what you're saying is so it's going to be very foreign to most of them because it's so far outside of their, so far outside of the box. And you know, I I think I struggled as a grad student for the first early years of my career with the same paradigm. Because this is the level we're talking at. We're not talking about the level of strategy or technique. We're talking about the paradigm level, which is, which governs the type of questions we ask and how we view what who we are. And the paradigm is at present a medical paradigm. The medical paradigm uh, uh, looks for the cause or etiology of a disease process and the strategies that contain specific ingredients remedial to that disease process. Right. So, in other words, we say, here's, here's a perfect example. Cognitive therapy is very popular. Its idea is a very medical one. Your depression is caused by dysfunctional thoughts. What is the clinician's job? Remove those thoughts like a surgeon. Right or replace them with positive thoughts. Now, here's the problem. There is no evidence that negative thinking causes depression or that the remediation of negative thoughts is what's responsible for the lifting of it. So if we believe in the medical view, we, we undermine our credibility. If, however, we step back and take a cultural view of this and say, the idea that thoughts cause problems has been a, a, an idea of gaining interest and belief since the late 1800s, early 1900s. That's where this whole idea originated. It didn't originate with Aaron Beck. It originated in the New Thought Movement at the turn of the century. And they were saying, replace your negative ones with positive ones. Right. Uh, as you're saying this... Um I just had like an epiphany because I think that um, I used to work at a drug and alcohol um, treatment center and one of the things you do in that world is you refer people out to AA and I was I was really struck by how in my opinion and I mean this in the best possible way hmm. AA is a religious sect you know you it come together yeah. it, you come together you have this belief in the higher power um, you have a book that you say like this is a definitive sort of text, um, and I've known people who have really gotten a lot lot out of it. Me too. Um, and I think that kind of goes to what you're saying, right? It's like there's this sense of something more that people, you know, tend to want to be connected to, and often really does help people make profound changes in their life. And it, again with me if you view that from a medical view then you're going to be in problem you're going to have a problem because you're going to be have to separate stuff science from religion right. but if you take an alternate paradigm 
And the chief proponent or uh, person who's explicated this most efficiently is Bruce Wampold in his fabulous book called The Great Psychotherapy Debate. It's called The Contextual Perspective. And, and, and the contextual perspective doesn't assume that methods need to contain ingredients specifically remedial to the underlying disease process. It instead assumes that people, ideas, uh, and methods all blend together to create healing. Healing meaning that we move on with our lives and that there isn't any necessary it isn't necessary for the, the methods to contain an ingredient that's actually remedial. So cognitive therapy clearly works. It just doesn't work for the reason we say, and neither does EMDR or emotionally focused therapy or, or any of these any of these methods. These are all, I wouldn't even call them mythical. They're cultural assumptions, and they, they are more or less effective depending on who is delivering it and whether or not the person it's delivered to agrees with it and is engaged by it. Oh. Um, ha- I mean, have you read much of the literature on emotionally focused therapy? Sure. Yeah. Now, I don't read, I have to tell you, I don't read uh, textbooks or uh, books written by authors or proponents. Of you read actual outcome studies? I read the outcome studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, I've started reading more of that lit because I've gotten trained in that. And if you have any articles about that, I'd love to. I'd love for you to send them my way as well. Sure. One of the things that I've been, I was kind of floored by is, you know, in, in EFT world, and I'll say we because I'm in this, this world now, we talk about how EFT is um, so effective. It's, you know, the most effective therapy. And then I read Sue Johnson's article, and she basically said, she basically discounted all other forms of therapy because they're not um, empirically based. I was I was really shocked that she excluded so many other models. And if you exclude if you exclude most things, of course yours is going to be the best. Yeah. Such advocates are 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 doing something that's been done for the last fifty years. So this this is nothing new. The same thing has been said about cognitive therapy. The same thing is said about acceptance therapy. And for me, all of these rumblings miss the broader point that virtually any of these approaches works as long as the client is engaged in it and the therapist delivers it uh, in, in a way that's engaging to the client. And even when you're following the protocol, whatever it might be, significant variability in outcome from client to client exists. So I need to attend to the client's my method. If I want to grow, I need to, as a therapist, I need to attend to the clients I don't help and figure out what more I need to do. So let me push back on two different points, and I'd love to get your feedback. The, the The first thing I think people could say is, maybe it's not the therapist, maybe it's the clients. Maybe certain clients are just better suited for therapy. Yeah. Well, what we do know is that therapists vary in their f- effectiveness tremendously. So I just was rereading a study by Stiles and Barkham from 2012. It was based on 119 therapists uh, out of the UK. And their recovery rates measured on a standardized scale ranged, hold on to your chair, from 23 to 95%. Holy smokes. So it's much 
more likely that who you see is much more important than what treatment they provide. And I'm guessing that this is also in a situation where people are getting broadly similar types of clients. Well, you these clients would be randomly distributed across the groups of therapists. Yeah. So you would assume that, and well, in fact, the more complex or difficult the client presents as in this particular study by Stiles and Barkham, the worse that the worst therapist in the sample did, and the better that the better the therapist in the sample did. Hmm. Let me give you one other one. Uh, this speaks, I think, more specifically to all this business about attachment, etc. Are there differences in attachment styles be between clients? Yes. What amount of variability are we talking about here? Well, to me, that's that's in in dispute. But the 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 go-to study about this was originally done by um, Baldwin in 2009. 331 clients, 81 therapists. And, of course, as in other studies, they found that therapists varied in their effectiveness. Now, hold on. This, you have to take a minute to wrap your head around all this data. In other words, there were differences in outcome between therapists. And Baldwin's question was, what accounted for the difference? And here's what he found. 97% of the difference in outcome between therapists was accounted for by therapist variability in the alliance. By contrast, zero of the difference was accounted for, accounted for by client variability in the alliance. Wow. So we often shift the burden zero? of response. Zero? Holy crap. We often shift the burden, and this is characteristic of our field, shift the burden to the clients. We say they're unmotivated. What I say to therapists who tell me this is, maybe your client finds you boring to the clients. We say they're unmotivated. What I say to therapists who tell me this is, maybe your client finds you boring. <laughs> Other times when therapists say, well, you know, this client has a very difficult attachment style, I turn that on its head and say, why would anyone want to be attached to you anyway? Yeah. The burden is on our shoulders to engage. The alliance is ours to manage, not the client's. And the fact that there are differences between them should excite us in terms of possibilities for growth, wow. not be used as an explanation for why we didn't help that client. Yeah. So the other side of this is, um, you know, what about people who I consider to be super researchers, right? Like um, John Gottman. I mean, that guy has numbers coming out of just everything. Um, and I mean I'll be honest I haven't read I've read his books I haven't read his research hmm. um, but how does stuff like like that when you know you're looking at people over time and on a much more micro level how does that tend to compare well you you tell me if you can find an outcome study that shows that Gottman's method is better than any other okay you know the the answer you get from research depends on the question you've asked. Right. This, I think, is a is a, is a, it was for me in in graduate school and, and continuing now for the last 35 years in the field. It is the fundamental question, and it's very hard to figure out from the way most studies are written. Well, what the hell question were they asking? 
And I think our whole uh, point and click culture that we live in leads us to switch or, or to turn our focus to whatever outcomes are reported. But the meaning of those outcomes depends entirely on what question was asked. So for me, as with other approaches, I'm always asking, compared to what? The Gottman method or any other method. And I'm, I'm a fan of John's. I, I, I love to listen to him talk. I love to watch them work. Uh, I love it. At the same time, if the question is this or that method, is right. it better than any other? And that means this, the two methods have to be directly compared in the same study. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, to show my cards here, I think I was really, um, what's the word? I was really astounded because I told you I was reading through that EFT research and there's one where they compare EFT head-to-head -head with um, IFS, Integrated Family Systems. It's a structural, stru structural strategic model. And in those two head-to-head -head studies, they score about the same, which is not talked about. And I, I mean, it's, I don't know, I mean, part of part of this is stuff that you know i think that you've let's define that jordan this yeah. is why direct compare hey let me tell you about a study that we did well we did a series of studies uh earlier in the millennium uh comparing looking at uh, direct comparisons of treatments for kids uh, direct comparisons of treatment for alcohol direct comparison of treatments for ptsd and of course we found no difference but here's the staggering the really staggering finding that really didn't get talked about when we started the search for, say, comparative treatments or, or treatments for kids with ADHD, depression, anxiety, and uh, antisocial behavior, there were something like 12,000 different studies published in the years we were looking at. Only, now I, I'm, I'm coming from memory here, so it was between 20 and 35 total studies in that decades long, uh, 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 decades of research in which two studies were in two methods were directly compared so you go from a massive number of studies that compare a method to nothing yeah or compare a method to treatment as usual which is the same as nothing yeah and you can only answer the question of relative efficacy and this is an important question i think for students and professionals to ask compared to what eft is the best treatment method okay compared to, compared what? to what not ifs right because they're 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 both they're both about the same, yeah. and this is the same with drug and alcohol problems. That was the finding of Project Match. That you know, uh, that's the finding of the Cannabis Youth Treatment Project. Massive amounts of money spent, and I'll tell you why. I you know, and oftentimes when people listen to me, Jordan, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and and the people that listen to your podcast, they they hear me being critical and cynical, but. My real question isn't, is one model better than another? My real question has always been, all the way back to my graduate school days, how do I learn to do this shit? Right. And how do I get him? And I'm telling you, learning a particular model is going to make you no better. Right. Hmm. So the other question I think people are going to ask is, Obviously, there are certain therapists who are better for what you know. Part of part of this is the deliberate practice reason. What else are these super strengths, as they've been termed? What else are they doing? 
Well, I, so far, that's the real difference that we know about. That's the real that difference. We, we know that they they simply spend more time deliberately practicing. Um, and and part of that, Jordan, is because interest in this subject is only very recent. In yeah. the first the first mention of deliberate practice in psychotherapy was our two two thousand and seven article in the in the psychotherapy network. That's the first mention ever. Now, um, the Society for Psychotherapy Research and their huge brain trust is on this. And I'm guessing that in the next decade, we'll see many trials uh, investigating various aspects of deliberate practice and other elements uh, known as therapist effects. That's a hot subject amongst researchers. And I think largely because the Although you wouldn't know it from the way workshops are taught, but that's that uh, is largely the interest of these of these therapists. What what accounts for the difference between therapists? And what about people who say that you can't compare you can't compare effect sizes between um, different studies? I'm I'm not sure I follow. There are some folks who say you can't compare the effect size of one study to another. Yeah, because uh, how they're measured is on different instruments. To well, me, that doesn't make sense. I, I'm like, that yeah. doesn't make... But I wanted to ask someone else. Sense. I, I mean, it doesn't. And it would be great, of course, if researchers could settle upon a consistent set of measures. And, and that's happening. But as you as you well can guess, that has its own problems and concerns. Right. Because the next question is going to be, well, is this the right measure of, uh, of outcome? But... There's a process you go through where you normalize scores on a particular. I think that there are other arguments that can be made, which is what were the inclusion criteria of the study that you included in your meta-analysis? That I think is a reasonable question. And let me give you an example why. Most studies which say there are differences between treatments include in their comparison treatments that no one in their right mind would actually consider a psychotherapy. So, for example, progressive relaxation. Well, progressive relaxation is not a psychotherapy, um, but it's been included in many different uh, studies. They compare the standard model of treatment exposure, for example, to progressive relaxation. Well, this isn't a comparison between two bona fide treatment approaches, and not surprisingly, when you do that, the uh, the 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 bona fide treatment has better outcomes, which leads everyone to conclude, well, it must have something to do with exposure. But the the latest research we have makes pretty clear that exposure is only one thing that helps people. Therapies that include no direct exposure actually are as, as effective as well, which goes back to this whole cultural point. Uh, to me, we need to be we need to be arguing less over which treatment approach is the right culture uh, and instead say, what do these cultures have to offer? Right. Um, so what, is it, what does that look like now, right? If we're going to incorporate um, magic and culture into, our, into the way that we help people get over these difficulties to move through whatever problems they're... they're... Well, I don't know. I think we're experimenting with it to, be, to begin to begin with, and I think there are significant and unanswered questions about what's the identity of our of our profession. Because let's face it, around the world, 
most people are not seeing psychotherapists to achieve healing in their lives. Most people are turning to favored aunts and uncles, indigenous healing traditions, uh, group support, a whole host of activities that I think if we embraced them and became more anthropologists rather than psychotherapists, that we would simply have, that we might have an ability to attract more people into the very real help that we offer. Remember what we started out this this call saying was psychotherapy really does work. It works amazingly well. It has an, an effect size that's similar to coronary artery bypass surgery. So there's no there's no problem with that. The problem really is is attracting people and keeping them in long enough to help them. Right. And I think then the second and related problem is how do therapists improve? Are you friends? And you don't have to answer the question. Uh, the last person that we that I talked to was uh, Stephen Gilligan. Oh yeah, I know Stephen. I've known him for a long time. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like he's um, headed in 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 the, in the direction that you feel like you know maybe we need to really seriously be considering. Stephen's a person that I think people should listen to. <laughs> yeah. um, he's um, he has a great deal of depth and experience delivering those very similar ideas uh, to clients, and uh, I think that's why he continues to be so popular. Uh, not on the same scale, for example, that uh, uh, Sue Johnson and EFT have, have achieved, uh, but d- they've done so in an in entirely different route. Steve hasn't pursued this whole um, evidence-based uh, way, of, a way, of, way of working, and in, right. in, in many ways that, that limits your ability to influence uh, the, the masses, so to speak. Right. Yeah. It is, it is interesting, though, because, you know, you go to a conference and even though um, more people might initially show up to see a Sue Johnson speak, mm. if you look at people who stay behind and are engaged, mm. I mean, Steve clearly resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, I would sit and I didn't know why I was attracted to what he was saying. But it yeah. spoke at a different level to me. And there are many people that are on a similar kind of plane, and I think as well that uh, even even some of the best practitioners I know who are EFT practitioners nod their head when I when I'm speaking. We're we're talking a, a difference between a practitioner and a proponent or advocate mm-hmm. of, of of the approach. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I have nothing in particular against EFT. I I, I think it, I think it's fine, and as far as approaches go. A, a good one to start with and 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 learn and and become proficient at. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um. So deliberate practice and really getting into okay, what have we as people as as a, as, as the human race, hmm. what sort of things have we always sort of uh, leaned toward, which have really um, captivated people's imaginations. So that they stay in it, are engaged in the treatment. Yeah, and that means for me, and this is probably the most radical, radical part of it. Uh, and and hear me out when I say what I'm about to say. I'm not interested in psychotherapy as an enterprise. I'm interested in doing whatever it takes to engage people in helping themselves. Yeah. To lead healthier, more functional, happier lives. 
and you can see that our species is is dedicated to that you've got people in yoga who are jogging who go to church who uh, it, it's amazing the reach and extent and psychotherapy views itself as only one element among all of those when my sense is if we looked at this more anthropologically we could be a bigger part yeah yeah I think you're right I think um, I mean even if you even if you just thought about it in terms of packaging right there is there is something that resonates with people, um, whether whether they go to a synagogue, a mosque, or a church about mm-hmm. something about that setting, right? People have have always done that. So right. at the at the very least, if you package whatever you um, are offering the client in something that makes complete sense to them, how could it not be more effective? Part of it is that there are forces right. that are unseen that influence our lives and the people historically who've been able to tap into that have been viewed as healers mm-hmm. so yeah. they can they can manage that connection between the greater beyond and myself those people have historically been healers now our profession is the first to actively eschew any such connection and to mm-hmm. say that the entire solution is is in you in your thoughts in your genes, in your emotions, in your behavior, in your brain chemistry. Wow, yeah. We've turned people into boxes, receptacles, rather than active co-creators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of their, of their, of the meaning in their lives. Yeah. Man. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, I mean, do you, is there anything else to that that, that you want to add? No. No, you know, you can, uh, thanks to Rich Simon at the, at, the, at the Networker, you can actually read about where our, our ideas are going in an article that came out last year called How Psychotherapy Lost Its Magic. That's a That's wonderful it. article. Thanks. And stuff on deliberate practice, we have a book coming out hopefully next September called Better Results. But at present, the two books that are out, uh, one is called Feedback Informed Treatment. It's out from APA, the American Psychological Association. The lead editor is David Prescott. And the second book, uh, the lead editor is Tony Roosmanier, mm-hmm. and it's called Cycle of Excellence, which uh, both of those are really about the idea of measuring our work and then engaging in deliberate practice. Yeah, I would love to touch base on that just for a second, only because yeah. I know that's been a huge um, gift to me and I thought I was a decent therapist I mean I didn't think I was like magic or anything but um, I routinely give the ORS and the, and the SRS and I am surprised at what clients say to me yeah. how honest they are and um, things that I completely miss um, that I actually don't think for whatever reason is that important to, to me but to the client it's so important so could you just give a a nod to those and then yeah no. so there are two measures that we include and then I want to come back to something you've said here the the ORS is an outcome rating scale we we suggest people give that at the beginning of each visit and discuss it with their clients the real important question at the beginning of the visit is did I help you last time 
and that's what that scale is designed to assess. If you help them, well, then you ought to investigate that more. And if you didn't, you ought to investigate what you're going to do differently this time. At the end of the visit, you give the SRS, which is the session rating scale, which is a measure of the therapeutic connection. Again, if there's some issue or concern as, as related by the client through lower scores, that should be discussed. Now, here's what we know, Jordan, and I think your clients being willing to share their results says something important about you, and that is not all therapists manage to get lower scores on the SRS, which should be the goal. Yeah. Instead, what the usual response I hear from therapists when they first start using the measure is, hey, this SRS, it doesn't work. People won't be honest with me. And they say, what can I do to make them honest? I said, it's not about them. It's about you. So in working with your students and thinking of your own practice, I'd ask you, how is it you create an atmosphere with the people you work with, much like you've created here during our conversation, where you feel free to say what's on your mind? Because yeah. that's the whole point. When people feel free to speak, they're engaged. When they're engaged, their connection deepens. When their connection deepens, healing occurs. That's the way it works. Yeah. Wow. And on that note, <laughs> that's a great place to end. Sure. Look, oh, thanks so much for talking with me. Hey, thanks for asking me.